Section 57 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Golding. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1E, Section 57, Chapter 61, Part 4. Blake lay some time off Cadiz, in expectation of intercepting the plate fleet, but was at last obliged, for want of water, to make sail towards Portugal. Captain Stainer, whom he had left on the coast with a squadron of seven vessels, came in sight of the galleons, and immediately set sail to pursue them. The Spanish admiral ran his ship ashore. Two others followed his example. The English took two ships, valued at near two millions of pieces of eight. Two galleons were set on fire and the Marquis of Bedejos, Viceroy of Peru, with his wife and his daughter, betrothed to the young Duke of Medina Celi, were destroyed in them. The Marquis himself might have escaped, but seeing these unfortunate women, astonished with the danger, fall in a swoon and perish in the flames, he rather chose to die with them than drag out a life embittered with the remembrance of such dismal scenes. When the treasures gained by this enterprise arrived at Portsmouth, the protector, from a spirit of ostentation, ordered them to be transported by land to London. The next action against the Spaniards was more honourable, though less profitable, to the nation. Blake, having heard that a Spanish fleet of sixteen ships, much richer than the former, had taken shelter in the Canaries, immediately made sail towards them. He found them in the Bay of Santa Cruz, disposed in a formidable posture. The bay was secured with a strong castle, well provided with cannon, besides seven forts in several parts of it, all united by a line of communication, manned with musketeers. Don Diego Diaguez, the Spanish admiral, ordered all his smaller vessels to moor close to the shore, and posted the larger galleons farther off at anchor, with their broadsides to the sea. Blake was rather animated than daunted with this appearance. The wind seconded his courage, and blowing full into the bay, in a moment brought him among the thickest of his enemies. After a resistance of four hours, the Spaniards yielded to English valour, and abandoned their ships, which were set on fire and consumed with all their treasure. The greatest danger still remained to the English. They lay under the fire of the castle and all the forts, which must in a little time have torn them to pieces. But the wind, suddenly shifting, carried them out of the bay, where they left the Spaniards in astonishment at the happy temerity of their audacious victors. This was the last and greatest action of the gallant Blake. He was consumed with the dropsy and scurvy, and hastened home, that he might yield up his breath in his native country, which he had so much adorned by his valour. As he came within sight of land, he expired. Never man, so zealous for a faction, was so much respected and esteemed even by the opposite factions. He was by principle an inflexible republican, and the late usurpations, amidst all the trust and caresses which he received from the ruling powers, were thought to be very little grateful to him. It is still our duty, he said to the seamen, to fight for our country, into what hands soever the government may fall. Disinterested, generous, liberal, ambitious only of true glory, dreadful only to his avowed enemies, he forms one of the most perfect characters of the age, and the least stained with those errors and violences which were then so predominant. The protector ordered him a pompous funeral to public charge, but the tears of his countrymen were the most honourable panegyric on his memory. The conduct of the protector in foreign affairs, though imprudent and impolitic, was full of vigour and enterprise, and drew a consideration to his country, 
which since the reign of Elizabeth it seemed to have totally lost. The great mind of this successful usurper was intent on spreading the renown of the English nation, and while he struck mankind with astonishment at his extraordinary fortune, he seemed to ennoble instead of debasing that people whom he had reduced to subjection. It was his boast that he would render the name of an Englishman as much feared and revered as ever was that of a Roman, and as his countrymen found some reality in these pretensions, their national vanity, being gratified, made them bear with more patience all the indignities and calamities under which they labored. It must also be acknowledged that the protector, in his civil and domestic administration, displayed as great regard both to justice and clemency as his usurped authority, derived from no law, and founded only on the sword, could possibly permit. All the chief offices in the courts of judicature were filled with men of integrity, amidst the virulence of faction. The decrees of the judges were upright and impartial, and to every man but himself, and to himself, except where necessity required the contrary, the law was the great rule of conduct and behavior. Vane and Lilburn, whose credit with the Republicans and Levellers he dreaded, were indeed for some time confined to prison. Coney, who refused to pay illegal taxes, was obliged by menaces to depart from his obstinacy. High courts of justice were erected to try those who had engaged in conspiracies and insurrections against the protector's authority, and whom he could not safely commit to the verdict of juries. But these irregularities were deemed inevitable consequences of his illegal authority, and though often urged by his officers, as is pretended, to attempt a general massacre of the royalists, he always with horror rejected such sanguinary counsels. In the army was laid the sole basis of the protector's power, and in managing it consisted the chief art and delicacy of his government. The soldiers were held in exact discipline, a policy which both accustomed them to obedience and made them less hateful and burdensome to the people. He augmented their pay, though the public necessities sometimes obliged him to run in arrears to them. Their interests, they were sensible, were closely connected with those of their general and protector, and he entirely commanded their affectionate regard, by his abilities and success in almost every enterprise which he had hitherto undertaken. But all military government is precarious, much more where it stands in opposition to civil establishments, and still more where it encounters religious prejudices. By the wild fanaticism which he had nourished in the soldiers, he had seduced them into measures, for which, if openly proposed to them, they would have entertained the utmost aversion. But this same spirit rendered them more difficult to be governed, and made their caprices terrible even to that hand which directed their movements. So often taught that the office of king was a usurpation upon Christ, they were apt to suspect a protector not to be altogether compatible with that divine authority. Harrison, though raised to the highest dignity, and possessed of Cromwell's confidence, became his most inveterate enemy as soon as the authority of a single person was established, against which that usurper had always made such violent protestations. Overton, Rich, Oakey, officers of rank in the army, were actuated with like principles, and Cromwell was obliged to deprive them of their commissions. Their influence, which was before thought unbounded among the troops, seemed from that moment to be totally annihilated. The more effectually to curb the enthusiasm and seditious spirit of the troops, Cromwell established a kind of militia in the several counties. Companies of infantry and cavalry were enlisted under proper officers, regular pay distributed among them, and a resource by that means provided both against the insurrections of the royalists and mutiny of the army. Religion can never be deemed a point of small consequence in civil government. 
but during this period it may be regarded as the great spring of men's actions and determinations. Though transported himself with the most frantic whimsies, Cromwell had adopted a scheme for regulating this principle in others, which was sagacious and political. Being resolved to maintain a national church, yet determined neither to admit episcopacy nor presbytery, he established a number of commissioners, under the name of triers, partly laymen, partly ecclesiastics, some Presbyterians, some independents. These presented to all livings which were formerly in the gift of the crown. They examined and admitted such persons as received holy orders, and they inspected the lives, doctrine, and behavior of the clergy. Instead of supporting that union between learning and theology, which has so long been attempted in Europe, these triers embraced the latter principle in its full purity, and made it the sole object of their examination. The candidates were no more perplexed with questions concerning their progress in Greek and Roman erudition, concerning their talent for profane arts and sciences. The chief object of scrutiny regarded their advances in grace and fixing the critical moment of their conversion. With the pretended saints of all denominations, Cromwell was familiar and easy. Laying aside the state of protector, which on other occasions he well knew how to maintain, he insinuated to them that nothing but necessity could ever oblige him to invest himself with it he talked spiritually to them he sighed he wept he canted he prayed he even entered with them into an emulation of ghostly gifts and these men instead of grieving to be outdone in their own way were proud that his highness by his princely example had dignified those practices in which they themselves were daily occupied if cromwell might be said to adhere to any particular form of religion they were the independents who could chiefly boast of his favor, and it may be affirmed that such pastors of that sect as were not passionately addicted to civil liberty were all of them devoted to him. The Presbyterian clergy, also saved from the ravages of the Anabaptists and Millenarians, and enjoying their establishments and tithes, were not averse to his government, though he still entertained a great jealousy of that ambitious and restless spirit by which they were actuated. He granted an unbounded liberty of conscience to all but Catholics and Prelatists, and by that means he both attached the wild sectaries to his person, and employed them in curbing the domineering spirit of the Presbyterians. I am the only man, he was often heard to say, who has known how to subdue that insolent sect which can suffer none but itself. The Protestant zeal which possessed the Presbyterians and Independents was highly gratified by the haughty manner in which the Protector so successfully supported the persecuted Protestants throughout all Europe. Even the Duke of Savoy, so remote a power and so little exposed to the naval force of England, was obliged, by the authority of France, to comply with his mediation, and to tolerate the Protestants of the valleys, against whom that prince had commenced a furious persecution. France itself was constrained to bear, not only with the religion, but even, in some instances, with the seditious insolence of the Huguenots, and when the French court applied for a reciprocal toleration of the Catholic religion in England, the protector, who arrogated in everything the superiority, would hearken to no such proposal. He had entertained a project of instituting a college, in imitation of that at Rome, for the propagation of the faith, and his apostles, in zeal, though not in unanimity, had certainly been a full match for the Catholics. Cromwell retained the Church of England in constraint, though he permitted its clergy a little more liberty than the Republican Parliament had formerly allowed. He was pleased that the superior lenity of his administration should in everything be remarked. 
he bridled the royalists both by the army which he retained and by those secret spies which he found means to intermix in all their councils manning being detected and punished with death he corrupted sir richard willis who was much trusted by chancellor hyde and all the royalists and by means of this man he was let into every design and conspiracy of the party he could disconcert any project by confining the persons who were to be the actors in it and as he restored them afterwards to liberty, his severity passed only for the result of general jealousy and suspicion. The secret source of his intelligence remained still unknown and unsuspected. Conspiracies for an assassination he was chiefly afraid of, these being designs which no prudence or vigilance could evade. Colonel Titus, under the name of Allen, had written a spirited discourse, exhorting every one to embrace this method of vengeance, and Cromwell knew that the inflamed minds of the royal party were sufficiently disposed to put the doctrine in practice against him. He openly told them that assassinations were base and odious, and he never would commence hostilities by so shameful an expedient, but if the first attempt or provocation came from them, he would retaliate to the uttermost. He had instruments, he said, whom he could employ, and he never would desist till he had totally exterminated the royal family. This menace, more than all his guards, contributed to the security of his person. There was no point about which the protector was more solicitous than to procure intelligence. This article alone, it is said, cost him sixty thousand pounds a year. Postmasters, both at home and abroad, were in his pay. Carriers were searched or bribed. Secretaries and clerks were corrupted. The greatest zealots in all parties were often these who conveyed private information to him, and nothing could escape his vigilant inquiry. Such at least is the representation made by historians of Cromwell's administration. But it must be confessed that if we may judge by those volumes of Thurlow's papers which have been lately published, this affair, like many others, has been greatly magnified. We scarcely find by that collection that any secret councils of foreign states, except those of Holland, which are not expected to be concealed, were known to the protector. The general behavior and deportment of this man, who had been raised from a very private station, who had passed most of his youth in the country, and who was still constrained so much to frequent bad company, was such as might befit the greatest monarch. He maintained a dignity without either affectation or ostentation, and supported with all strangers that high idea with which his great exploits and prodigious fortune had impressed them. Among his ancient friends he could relax himself, and by trifling and amusement, jesting and making verses, he feared not exposing himself to their most familiar approaches. With others he sometimes pushed matters to the length of rustic buffoonery, and he would amuse himself by putting burning coals into the boots and hose of those officers who attended him. Before the king's trial, a meeting was agreed on between the chiefs of the Republican Party and the general officers, in order to concert the model of that free government which they were to substitute in the room of the monarchical constitution now totally subverted. After debates on this subject, the most important that could fall under the discussion of human creatures, Ludlow tells us that Cromwell, by way of frolic, threw a cushion at his head, and when Ludlow took up another cushion in order to return the compliment, the general ran downstairs and had almost fallen in the hurry. When the High Court of Justice was signing the warrant for the execution of the King, a matter, if possible, still more serious, Cromwell, taking the pen in his hand, before he subscribed his name, bedaubed with ink the face of Martin, who sat next him, and the pen being delivered to Martin, he practiced the same frolic upon Cromwell. He frequently gave feasts to his inferior officers, and when the meat was set upon the table, a signal was given— 
the soldiers rushed in upon them, and with much noise, tumult, and confusion, ran away with all the dishes, and disappointed the guests of their expected meal. That vein of frolic and pleasantry, which made a part, however inconsistent, of Cromwell's character, was apt sometimes to betray him into other inconsistencies, and to discover itself even where religion might seem to be a little concerned. It is a tradition that one day, sitting at table, the protector had a bottle of wine brought him, of a kind which he valued so highly, that he must needs open the bottle himself. But in attempting it the corkscrew dropped from his hand. Immediately his courtiers and generals flung themselves on the floor to recover it. Cromwell burst out a-laughing. Should any fool, said he, put in his head at the door, he would fancy, from your posture, that you were seeking the Lord, and you are only seeking a corkscrew. Amidst all the unguarded play and buffoonery of this singular personage, he took the opportunity of remarking the characters, designs, and weaknesses of men, and he would sometimes push them, by an indulgence in wine, to open to him the most secret recesses of their bosom. Great regularity, however, and even austerity of manners, were always maintained in his court, and he was careful never by any liberties to give offence to the most rigid of the godly. Some state was upheld, but with little expense, and without any splendour. The nobility, though courted by him, kept at a distance, and disdained to intermix with those mean persons who were the instruments of his government. Without departing from economy, he was generous to those who served him, and he knew how to find out and engage in his interests every man possessed of those talents which any particular employment demanded. His generals, his admirals, his judges, his ambassadors, were persons who contributed, all of them, in their several spheres, to the security of the protector and to the honour and interest of the nation. Under pretence of uniting Scotland and Ireland in one commonwealth with England, Cromwell had reduced those kingdoms to a total subjection, and he treated them entirely as conquered provinces. The civil administration of Scotland was placed in a council, consisting mostly of English, of which Lord Bruguil was president. Justice was administered by seven judges, four of whom were English. In order to cure the tyrannical nobility, he both abolished all vassalage and revived the office of justice of peace, which King James had introduced, but was not able to support. A long line of forts and garrisons was maintained throughout the kingdom. An army of ten thousand men kept everything in peace and obedience, and neither the banditti of the mountains nor the bigots of the low countries could indulge their inclination to turbulence and disorder. He courted the Presbyterian clergy, though he nourished that intestine enmity which prevailed between the resolutioners and protesters, and he found that very little policy was requisite to foment quarrels among theologians. He permitted no church assemblies, being sensible that from thence had proceeded many of the past disorders, and in the main the Scots were obliged to acknowledge that never before, while they enjoyed their regular factious liberty, had they attained so much happiness as at present, when reduced to subjection under a foreign nation. The Protector's administration of Ireland was more severe and violent. The government of that island was first entrusted to Fleetwood, a notorious fanatic, who had married Ireton's widow, then to Henry Cromwell, second son of the Protector, a young man of an amiable, mild disposition, and not destitute of vigour and capacity. Above five millions of acres, forfeited either by the Popish rebels or by the adherents of the King, were divided, partly among the adventurers, who had advanced money to the Parliament, partly among the English soldiers, who had arrears due to them. Examples of a more sudden and violent change of property are scarcely to be found in any history. An order was even issued to confine all the native Irish to the province of Connaught, 
where they would be shut up by rivers, lakes, and mountains, and could not, it was hoped, be any longer dangerous to the English government. But this barbarous and absurd policy, which, from an impatience of attaining immediate security, must have depopulated all the other provinces, and rendered the English estates of no value, was soon abandoned as impracticable. End of section 57, chapter 61, part 4. Recording by Greg Golding of Georgetown, Ontario, Canada.